Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Let's turn now to uh, one stock and one story uh, in particular. 21st Century Fox shares higher right now by more than 7%. This comes after an increased bid from Disney, $71 billion to acquire those uh, 21st Century Fox assets. Here to tell us more, Paul Sweeney, uh, expert when it comes to all things uh, internet and media related. He is our director of North American Research for Bloomberg Intelligence and our internet analyst. Paul, uh, what do you make of this uh, particular move by uh, Disney. Is this the uh, the coda? Is this the final, final bid? You know, we'll have to see. The ball is definitely in Comcast's court here. Um, but, you know, this is a very aggressive move by Bob Iger uh, and, and Disney. Um, not only did they raise the price of their deal by approximately 35%, but they also added a cash component, allowing shareholders to elect between cash and stock. And that really makes the deal very compelling for sellers, particularly the Murdoch family, who may prefer to take stock and defer some of their, their tax gains versus a, a Comcast deal, which is all cash and which would uh, clearly uh, result in a, a significant tax liability for the Murdoch. So this is about as compelling a deal as Disney could have come back with. I think it's actually a little surprising how aggressive they were. Uh, so, again, the ball is really in um, the court of Comcast and Brian Roberts, and uh, they need to decide how much they want this asset. I'm really confused about the market response to this. Disney shares are up more than 1%, even though, uh, you know, the risk of Disney overpaying, the risk of a bidding war ending up with an outcome that isn't so great is rising. Can you explain why investors are cheering this? Uh, The power of cash. Um, So I think what's happening here is the original all-stock deal that Disney uh, put on the table uh, is actually dilutive to Disney shareholders per our analysis. However, as they reduced the amount of equity uh, that they put in deal and increased the cash, even at at today's low rates, the deal becomes less and less uh, dilutive and actually uh, a little bit accretive here, so depending upon the the elections of cash versus stock. So um, it's actually for Disney, from a near-term perspective even a little bit uh, better, believe it or not. And then I think it just kind of goes to, I think it reflects the fact that I think investors feel like this might be a knockout punch by Disney. Well, uh, taking a look at the shares of Comcast, uh, on the other hand, you know, Comcast uh, investors don't seem to have liked this deal. The stock is down nearly 18% so far this year. Today, basically uh, unchanged. Do you think that the, if indeed Disney walks away with this, that um, this will be something that will be positive for Comcast? Uh, I think so. And in the short term, you're, you're exactly right. The stock has been down this year. It's been underperforming, even Charter, which is another uh, big cable company. And I think the concern there with Comcast was just exactly what happened, that they would uh, try to use their balance sheet to make a big acquisition. And then 
uh, and, uh, you know, really limit uh, the amount of stock they can buy back or the amount they can invest in some of their other core businesses. And I think Comcast investors, while they're obviously very supportive of Brian Roberts and his management team, I think they feel like um, the Fox assets are not as critical to the future of Comcast as they might be for Disney as a result. I don't think Comcast shareholders were quite as supportive of the Comcast management team and board as the, Dis- the Disney shareholders have proven to be. Um, so the question then will be, you know, A, what does Comcast do here in response to the Disney bid? And B, if they lose, where does Comcast go next? Um, do they try to cobble together some assets like a Discovery Communications, like some other media companies that might be out there, like some film studios that might replicate in some way um, the assets that they uh, did not get with Fox? Paul Sweeney, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, I'm sure we'll be following this uh, on an ongoing basis as this saga continues to play out. Paul Sweeney is U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. General Electric shares are down more than 1% today following a nearly 2% loss yesterday after getting kicked out of the Dow Jones Index. This is a symbolic move, but it also uh, could affect GE's fortunes going forward in a fundamental way. Uh, Sarah Ponsack joins us now. She's Bloomberg Cross Asset Reporter. Um, And this story is fascinating from so many perspectives. But first, can you just sort of paint the picture? General Electric has been in the index for a long time, a storied company. Why was it kicked out? Of course. So this is pretty bittersweet. GE was one of the original Dow members, and now we don't have any of them. But the problem with GE is that we have been seeing it come forth with so many issues lately. I mean, it's lost half its market value in the last year. This year, it's down 26% already. Last year, it's down. I mean, it's been struggling with weak demand for industrial equipment. It's had cash flow problems. They're also going through an accounting probe right now. So there's just so much right now that's hurting the company. And it dropped to a point that's so low because the Dow is price weighted that it really didn't have too much weight within the Dow. And the Dow is also supposed to represent the economy and the Dow makers, if you will, feel like the economy is moving forth and maybe GE isn't the next part of it. Well, just to be clear, right, the way in which the Dow Jones Industrial Average is put together is it is a price of, it's the sum of the actual price of all of the components in the index. And then that price is then divided by something called the Dow divisor. (laughs) And that is designed to account for stock splits uh, as well as a variety of other kind of changes in the actual uh, stock price. And it's interesting because this is a very human decision, right? This is not something like GE reached a certain level of sales, you're out. It's, it's not about it. It's not about that. Right. It's not rules based. And like you said, it is price weighted, whereas a lot of the under, other indices are market cap weighted. Right. But it's not a rules based system that either adds stocks or takes stocks out of the index. Rather, there's actually a committee that sits around and discusses which stocks right. should be the next one added. But this raises so many questions about just, you know, what is passive management yep. and, you know, with index strategies. Is this smart investing? I mean, given the fact that this company's shares 
has have absolutely tanked is now the time to sell out and solidify losses and then bring in another name that's done really well that might not have as many gains looking forward. Right. So Stephen Gundel, he wrote an opinion column for Bloomberg this morning, and he made a really interesting point saying, is it fair uh, for a committee to sit around and kind of choose what the economy is supposed to look like? going forwards. And he pointed out that the Dow dropped AT&T back in 2015. And since then, AT&T is up 15%. We just saw the acquisition with Time Warner. And even before that, the Dow dropped Bank of America in 2013. And since then, Bank of America shares are up 120%. So it really comes down to the point of who whose choice is it to really decide who goes in, who comes out? American Cotton Oil Company. That was one of the original Dow members, just to give it, and it's now part of Unilever after a variety of, you know, acquirers and sellers and so on. But Mm -hmm. I mean, it just reflects the ongoing change in the way that the economy is represented in the financial markets, right? Right. And something that we've been discussing a lot is why Walgreens? We've been trying to figure it out because with Walgreens, you can go both ways. Of course, it is actually classified as a consumer staples company, but a lot of people do think of it as a bit of a healthcare company company. So if you look at the weightings and the members of the makeup of the Dow, consumer staples hold about 5.7% of the entire index, but healthcare, on the other hand, holds about 13%. So is this a safe way to get more at retail, but not get into traditional retail? Someone I spoke with this morning, she said, you're not going to add Macy's, you're not going to add JCPenney, but is it kind of a cop out? I also wonder, you know, just with respect to General Electric getting booted, how much the company's shares will now decline further just as sort of a de facto response to these indexed funds that are being forced to sell the shares. Right. And so I, I wonder if this sort of creates a spiral. And that includes exchange traded funds, Correct. as you, as exactly. you mentioned, yeah. right? But Goldman Sachs, actually, they came out with an interesting note. I thought it was a bit contrarian because that's what you would think. Um, but an analyst over at Goldman Sachs, he actually found that stocks that have been removed from the index recently have typically outperformed the rest of the Dow over the next 12 months. And some are saying, in a way, maybe this is good for GE because maybe this takes off that label of GE being that old, sturdy industrial company and maybe it allows it to move forwards. Well, actually, Brooke Sutherland of uh, Bloomberg Opinion wrote a column and was discussing how perhaps this frees up General Electric to think more radically about how to reshape itself uh, and perhaps do a wholesale breakup of the company and and really reckon with some of the problems that it's been facing over the past few months. Yeah, I mean, we'll definitely see going forward and it'll be interesting to keep an eye on GE's price just because it has been torn down so much over the past year or even more of a year or so. But it's got to be good for the shares of uh, Walgreens. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at Walgreens shares right now, Walgreens shares are trading trading up about almost four and a half percent. So we're seeing it reflected in the share price today. And I'm sure going forwards as it's added, I think it's supposed to be effective Tuesday before the open of the market. Uh, I'm sure we'll see a bit of a of a boost there. Yeah. And just to give you the perspective, Walgreens Boots Alliance has three hundred and forty five thousand employees. Compare that to General Electric, uh, 313,000 employees. So at least in terms of number of people who work for the companies, uh, not uh, dissimilar. And I will just uh, make one additional note that while we're talking about General Electric and the Dow Jones Index, uh, there are other index-related decisions that are affecting vast amounts of money right mm-hmm. now as well. For example, uh, with respect to Saudi Arabia and Argentina, both looking for uh, their inclusion in an MSCI index, uh, which would affect $600 billion of assets. I mean, it's just these, these and just index- recently happened with China. That's right. right. That's Chinese right. Chinese stocks. Leather. I'm going to leave you with that last thought. 
Do you know why? I, I, Go I'm ahead. so scared, Tim. Oh, come on. <laughs> I don't the know where US, you're going. <laughs> the U.S. Leather Company was an original member of the Dow. There you go. Thanks very much. Sarah Pontek, Bloomberg News, cross-asset reporter, all about General Electric. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Investing in small and mid-cap stocks. That's a specialty of our next guest, Eric Kuby. He is the chief investment officer for North Star Investment Management. They are based in Chicago. Eric joins us, though, in our 1130 studios. Eric, thank you very much for being with us. All right, step up to the plate and tell us, how do you define small and mid-cap stocks? And tell us about the North Star Dividend Fund. This is uh, the symbol uh, is NSDVX. Right, great. Well, thanks for having me here. Um, so we define uh, small cap stocks as actually being companies that have market caps under $2.5 billion. Uh, the definition changes. I know uh, when I first got in the business, a small cap stock probably had a market cap under $100 million. So you, you have to keep moving with the times. Um, but uh, we focus actually on the smaller end of the small cap stocks, the billion dollar and, and under uh, area. All right. So you know, this is a very important interview to be having right now because the Russell 2000, which is often viewed as a proxy for smaller companies in the U.S., has been on a tear. It has mm. more returned more than twice as much as the S&P 500 and uh, nearly three times as much as the Dow Jones Industrial Index. So I have to wonder, you know, right now, many investors are viewing small cap stocks as a haven from trade tensions, because these companies are less exposed to any economic impacts. Do you think that this is an accurate bet? So, so to a certain extent, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there are certain characteristics of small cap companies which uh, make them a haven from from what is concerning the market right now. Most small cap companies don't do much international business, so they're not going to be that affected. Now, they're not immune because their supply chain still uh, is affected. Um, and so I don't think that it's a safe haven uh, per se, but I do think it's a good place to go into. The other aspect is the dollar. The dollar has strengthened quite a bit. Again, that's typically good for small cap companies. It shows the the domestic economy is strong and also they're not exporting. So the strong dollar doesn't hurt them. Again, largely, I think what's happening is a rotation. Uh, 2017 was the year of the large cap growth stock. The entire year, 12 months in a row, uninterrupted. 
through January, uninterrupted, large cap growth stocks. And since then, there's been a rotation into small cap companies, mainly into the Russell 2000, because people like to index. And I don't think that that's really the right way to do it, because within the index, you know, there's a, a lot of th companies that aren't benefiting from the corporate tax cut, that aren't benefiting from the strong dollar. But um, so we like we like more specific small cap companies. But it's the easy trade. It's the Russell 2000. People like the easy trade. All right, I'm going to ask Lisa to check your footwear right now because uh -oh. um, I want you to talk about a company that I know is in the portfolio. This is Rocky Brands uh, out of Nelsonville, Ohio. How'd you find Nelson? How'd you find uh, uh, Rocky Brands? They Did made... you want my report on the yeah, shoes? Yeah, okay, come on. They're they're I mean, pretty classic. Yeah, All right. Tennis socks. Yeah, tennis socks. Pretty classic well black uh, office shoes. Right. There you right. go. No, no boots today. All right. Uh, so we found Rocky the same way we find most of our companies, which is we screen. You know, we're screening for companies in our market cap or, uh, arena that are had nice dividend yields. We When we bought Rocky, it was over 3%. That's our dividend screen was over 3%. And it was trading extraordinarily uh, cheaply versus book value, uh, versus their earnings. Uh, and uh, what's happened is their business has gone, it's, it's had a terrific year. Uh, all of their markets are doing really well, outdoor work, Western and military. They also do um, a, um, a great business with, uh, uh, with companies. About 2 million employees have to wear protected footwear in the country. And they've got a great system for de de delivering the right footwear that companies need to buy for their employees. So it's been a terrific company, having a fantastic year. If you go down the list, uh, some of the other names that you identify, McGrath, Rent Corp, Brooks Automation, BG Staffing, uh, among others. I just want to get your sense real quick. We have about a minute here on just the U.S. economy from the small business perspective. Are you hearing from leaders of the companies that we are peaking and that their profits and potential are peaking or that this is the beginning of another sort of leg up in this business cycle? Uh, small business optimism is at all-time high. Uh, when I talk to company managements, they sound very enthusiastic about the near and intermediate term. Uh, there is some concern about uh, the, you know, again, some of the tariffs, how that's going to affect them, what's going to happen to the consumer if there is inflation. But we talk to CEOs all the time, and uniformly, they feel great about the, the future, very positive. And they can hire people. And, they, and they're looking to hire people. And BG Staffing, which is a temporary help firm, uh, is uh, doing a good job of helping companies find people to hire. So uh, employment is terrific, and they're looking to hire people. All right. Eric Kuby, thank you so much for joining us. Eric Kuby is Chief Investment Officer at North Star Investment Management, which is based in Chicago, but he trekked out here to a uh, sultry New York City uh, where we're enjoying some really... Uh, Maybe... Maybe he trekked wearing his Rocky brand boots. Yeah, so, maybe. Although if you have to take those off and then and then lace them back up again when you're going through security, yeah. it might be it might be uncomfortable. Right. I always use slip on.
There is a profound dissonance in markets these days. If you look at the political headlines crossing, uh, it highlights a deep polarization of uh, several nations and a sense of high drama. If you look at the markets, the drama is not there. Joining us to talk about, uh, you know, just how to view tariff talk and other sort of uh, policy driven news that we've been getting uh, from an investing standpoint is Mark Freeman, Chief Investment Officer at Westwood Holdings Group, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. So at what point, uh, Mark, do you start to change your allocations in light of the tariff discussions that we've been getting and the back and forth between uh, Xi Jinping and and, and uh, Donald Trump. Yeah, well, first, uh, great to be with you. Um, I, I think you raised a real key point, uh, certainly for investors. I think ultimately what we have to differentiate in this in this area is, is that ultimately when do these issues tariffs obviously are front and foremost. But when do these issues move from being what I would say impacting the multiple, which is a confidence gauge, and impacting on that, but move from that to being an earnings factor? Uh, because that's ultimately when it becomes a much more significant an issue for the market. Right now, we're seeing it from a volatility standpoint. And that's why when I say it impacts the multiple, you're seeing volatility or changes in, in that. But when it becomes a much more fundamental issue is when you actually start to see it impact either actual earnings or perhaps even more importantly, the market's expectation for, for what future earnings will be. Uh, that, that's, that, that's when it becomes an important issue. Okay, so just so, so that it, we're clear here, it's yeah. about the difference between what investors are willing to pay for every dollar of earnings, That's what right. they're willing to pay, versus the actual performance of the company. So they're two kind of different things. <laughs> exactly right. Okay. Okay. Uh, from there. Yeah, all right. Now I want to get to the point about cash, because I know you you, you help manage uh, the Westwood uh, Fund. This is W-H-G-I-X, right? right? And this is the Westwood Income Opportunities Fund. Do you recommend people hold on to a decent amount of cash now, or do you want to be fully invested? Well, I think in this environment, and our view is as we go forward, that volatility, which had been largely absent uh, prior coming into this year, but that volatility will normalize, and that's just another way of saying return back to where it was prior to the uh, prior to the to, to the great financial crisis, and that but basically that volatility going forward will be higher. So whether it's issues like this or some other items from there, we expect volatility to go back to a more normalized level. Under that assumption, we would advocate holding at least some cash. Now we can define what is significant or how much that is. For us, that's typically between, say, 6 to maybe 10% cash. We view that as just being so – and what that allows you to do is to be opportunistic. It's not, it's not so you just keep it and it's there. But I think the other thing that, that's, that at the margin, which is now starting to matter, and which is very different where we've been roughly from the last decade, is now the rate of return on cash has actually moved up. I mean, that is the one of the things that the Fed, from a tightening standpoint, has, tr- has probably impacted the most is actually the rate on cash. And as that continues, if that continues to drift up, which it seems – most likely, the Fed is very much committed to continuing to raise rates. Then that's another. So now the opportunity cost is is, is diminishing uh, on that front. But I, I think in this environment, in allowing to be opportunistic, uh, makes sense. I ask a lot of people this, and and I, I'd love to get your response uh, to it. When was the last time that you made a significant change to your allocations in in, in your portfolios? Oh, goodness. Um, well, in terms of our specific income opportunity uh, strategy, we use up to eight different asset classes, and, and those are changing literally on a quarterly basis. It's ultimately driven, though, by the market environment and where we're seeing opportunities and where things perhaps are getting repriced. Yeah. And so it's moving. It, it, it shifts 
uh, incrementally, you know, on a quarterly basis, even on sometimes on a weekly basis. But uh, but over time, it does change rather significantly. So what's been the most recent significant change that you made in allocation? I think one of the things is actually is is uh, a couple a couple of different areas. One, look, there is being some repricing on the short end of the yield curve. And so we're using that, implementing some of our cash. We'd had higher, higher cash balance. We can now use that to add some incremental yield uh, for that. Um, and another part of the capital structure, the preferred market. And so we're there, we're not to get too technical, but where we can use uh, what we call, they're called hybrids, but they're just floating rate securities. They have a shorter duration than a typical preferred, but then they become a floater after either three years, five years with a nice reset. And so if our expectations are that short rates and Fed rates continue to move up, that's kind of a, a way for us to participate in that and still earn some attractive yield. And, and then the other area we're still in our largest component is, is still in the equity market. I want to ask you about one area of the equity market, mm-hmm. and this is uh, transportation, because I noticed you got a position in, in FedEx. Right. And I was reading a story today that um, logistic costs have really accelerated. They're up about 6% year over year. And I would imagine that that's got to benefit a company like FedEx if they can pass along those increased costs to consumers or businesses. That, that's a fundamental part of our thesis in, in terms of owning the name. And, and just to kind of give you um, not not necessarily an anecdotal um, uh, 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 example of that is that if you look at the consumer staples sector, and many of those companies, when they were reporting, they were saying, look, um, we knew in-demand was a problem, but now we're facing uh, cost pressures, and then more specifically, we're facing cost pressures on the transportation front. I heard that from the Clorox report. The Clorox, General Mills, others, they've all highlighted that. And so, so one company's cost pressures is another company's pricing power. And so if we're like, okay, well, then maybe let's take a look at the company that has pricing power. And, and FedEx, I think, is, is a classic example of that. What do you think is the biggest mistake that many investors are making today? Oh, gosh. Um, that's, 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 a, that's a great question. Um, I, to me, it's about, I, I think it would be necessarily, not necessarily maybe a mistake, but I think in terms of, uh, of understanding uh, from a process standpoint. One of the things that we um, have been communicating to, um, to our investors uh, and to others is that, look, don't lose sight of how the process works um, in terms of, look, profit, the market eventually always follows profit growth. Okay, so profits are item number one. So profits lead the market and the market um, leads the economy. Uh, the problem is, is that investors, t- t- from a from a relationship standpoint, they tend to think of it as exactly the opposite, and that's why you, so many times you see retail investors are saying, "Okay, the time to invest is when the economy is doing really, really well, because then that's going to be good for the market, and then therefore that should be good for for profits." It's it's exactly the opposite, and so we're really just trying to highlight to people that ultimately. Despite, look, I'm not saying all these more politically oriented items and things like that aren't important, but it ultimately comes back to the fundamentals for the market. And that then the single most important fundamental for the market is ultimately is profit growth and what that looks like and following that for going going forward from there. I want to thank you very much for being with us. Much appreciated. Yeah, it's my pleasure. to having you in the future. Mark Freeman is the chief investment officer of Westwood Holdings Group. They are based in Dallas, Texas, and uh, much appreciated. Very interesting uh, conversation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.